Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders, past and present. It's Wednesday the 21st of September 1803 and in Sydney, convicts Joseph Samuels and John Russell are on trial for their lives. They're charged with breaking and entering the house of brothel keeper Mary Breeze at the end of last month. This is the crime that resulted in the murder of Constable Joseph Luca, the first Australian policeman to die in the execution of his duty. Not that there's evidence against Joseph Samuels and John Russell that implicates them in this killing. But it's academic really because if they're found guilty of burglary, they're both going to get death sentences. Joseph Samuels is resigned to this fate. He lied before and squandered his chance at immunity. He can't double down and lie again by pleading not guilty. Not when he's confessed to the very magistrates who are sitting in judgment of him now. Joseph Samuels pleads guilty, puts his neck in the noose. His only chance is that the governor, by the grace of God, will show him mercy. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the second and final instalment of the Forgotten Australia episode, our first cop killer, the luckiest man unhung, and the birth of Australian true crime reporting. After Joseph Samuels had pleaded guilty, John Russell pleaded not guilty, and his trial proceeded. Mary Breeze testified about finding her house burgled, 
of telling Constable Luca about it and that he'd said he was pretty sure it had been orchestrated by Constable Isaac Simmons. Constable Luca had told Mary he'd be on the case after he went on duty at midnight and at daylight he'd be in the brush in the hope, quote, he should see the parties removing the property. Richard Jackson testified that he and Samuels had planned the robbery. They'd run into John Russell by accident and asked him to be their lookout. He'd agreed, but when they'd left Mary's place, John Russell was gone, if in fact he'd ever been out the front at all. The court asked Richard Jackson if he'd intended to give John Russell one-third of the spoils. Richard Jackson said, well, after what he did, Joseph Samuels and I decided he was getting nothing. The court also wanted to know whether Jackson and Samuels had previously talked of or planned crimes in John Russell's presence. Richard Jackson could not say that that was the case. With the Crown's evidence closed, lodging house lady Sarah Lawrence was called for the defence. She deposed that on the evening the robbery was committed, she'd sent for John Russell, who lived nearly opposite, asking that he come over and chop wood for her. John had arrived at dusk and stayed with her until after 8pm. The judge advocate asked if Sarah had seen John Russell before that, lurking around outside, as he would have been if he'd been keeping watch on Mary's place, which was also nearly opposite. Sarah said she had not seen him on the street. John Russell was called, and he denied the charges against him. The court was cleared. The bench conferred for a few minutes. When court resumed, with John Russell at the bar, the judge advocate said that Richard Jackson's evidence against him was not corroborated by other testimony, and he was free to go. On Friday the 23rd of September, Isaac Simmons and William Bladders stood trial for willful murder. John Harris, Esquire, gave evidence about Constable Luca's body and the wounds he'd suffered being the cause of death. He told of seeing the blood on William Bladders at the inquest, with this evidence corroborated by Mr. Bloodworth. William Bladders' initial story about scratches and bites was related, as was his subsequent explanation about him slaughtering a pig. The court heard about the blood-stained barrow carriage found opposite to Bladders' room and that he'd been agitated when he was apprehended. Mr. Mann told of finding Constable Luca's body on the tractor farm cove. But, as the Gazette reported, Mr. Mann also said, quote, He heard the prisoner Simmons declare that if he, the deponent, would be answerable for the payment of a £100 reward, the whole affair would come to light. Another witness, named Henry King, said he'd heard Simmons say the same thing. It seemed that Constable Simmons had been trying to drum up a £100 reward so he could reveal the identity of the murderer. If this was true, who'd done it? Or, perhaps more accurately, who did he hope to pin it on? Appearing for William Bladders, a man named Christopher Ward testified that he'd slept on the night of the 25th in the same room as the accused. William Bladders, he said, did not go out until after drum the next morning. Christopher's brother, John, gave testimony saying the same thing. John Archer deposed that it had been before the morning drum that he'd heard a voice exclaim in a lamentable tone, Lord, Lord! which was accepted as being Constable Luca's last words. 
Richard Jackson testified that he and Joseph Samuels had been called up that morning at a much earlier hour than usual by Isaac Simmons. Their work shift was supposed to start at 6, but usually things didn't get underway until 7. Yet that morning, Simmons, who'd gone off the night watch at 12, had been up and back on duty by 6. Mr. Redman, the chief constable, also testified to this effect. More damningly, he said that a few days later, Isaac Simmons, while on duty, had attempted to rub blood off the desk. Another police witness corroborated this observation. Two constables testified about finding Isaac Simmons' blood-spattered shirt and the three handkerchiefs that had been heavily stained with blood. With the Crown evidence closed, the prisoners began their defence. William Bladders agreed that he had been agitated when apprehended, but who wouldn't be when accused of such a crime? But he pointed out that John Archer had said he'd heard Constable Lucas cry before the morning drumbeat, but Christopher and John Ward had both testified that he, William Bladders, had been in bed then and had not gone out until after the drum. William Bladders told the court about helping to slaughter the pig on the morning of the murder and he called several witnesses to say that he'd been at Mr. Lord's a little after six o'clock doing this work. Moreover, he'd been doing it barefoot, and he'd been holding a basin to catch the blood, but a lot of it had splashed around, and that accounted for the blood that had been seen on his feet and his legs. William Bladders deposed that at the drumbeat he was in bed, and that he did not go out until after it had ceased. Similarly, Isaac Simmons declared his innocence. He said that he'd been suffering nosebleeds for a long time now. The blood on his shirt was from a fish he'd cleaned or from a duck he'd killed. That was that. The men's fates now rested with the judge advocate and the magistrates. They cleared the court and conferred for a few minutes. Then the men of the bench returned their verdict. William Bladders and Isaac Simmons were not guilty. That meant that, barring any new developments, Constable Joseph Luca's murder would go unavenged. William Bladders and Isaac Simmons would go free. But others weren't so lucky in that week's criminal sessions. Eight death sentences were handed down. One of the men so condemned was named James Hardwick. Not the brightest candle in the colony, he'd gotten into a room in the debtors section of the jail and there he'd stolen a waistcoat and cash and bills worth nine and a half pounds. For this, he was going to hang. Joseph Samuels was also sentenced to death that Friday. His Excellency the Governor extended mercy to some of the men so condemned. But not to Joseph Samuels, and not to James Hardwick. They both now had less than three days to live. They were going to hang on Monday morning. At 9.30am on Monday the 26th of September 1803, Joseph Samuels and James Hardwick were taken to the gallows at Brickfield Hill, near where Sydney's Metro Theatre now stands. As ever, such a spectacle attracted a large crowd of people, voluntary and thereby force. But this audience was unusual in that a man suspected of actually committing cold-blooded murder was present. 
Isaac Simmons had been forced to come under guard from the battery at George's Head, where, as a convict subject to the government, he was now being kept in confinement. Joseph Samuels and James Hardwick, the Gazette reported, quote, conducted themselves with becoming decency. The Reverend Samuel Marsden prayed for and with James Hardwick. But Joseph Samuels was Jewish. So, as Happy George reported, he was given spiritual comforts by, quote, a person of his own profession. But once Reverend Marsden had finished with James Hardwick, he took a crack at Joseph Samuels. Not to convert him at the very last moment, though clergy would try that on the gallows with indigenous people. Rather, the good reverend wanted the doomed man to reveal what he knew about Constable Luca's murder before it was too late. Joseph Samuels could no longer save his neck, but he might still save his soul if he told the truth. At first, the man refused to speak. But then, as the Gazette reported, quote, Appearing deeply impressed with a becoming sense of his approaching end, he appealed to heaven to hear his testimony. Joseph Samuel spoke without acrimony, calmly, softly. But not so softly that the crowd didn't hear and hang on every word. Joseph Samuel said that while he'd been confined in the cell with Isaac Simmons, they had, per the Gazette's phrasing, in the Hebrew tongue, exchanged an oath by which they bound themselves to secrecy and silence in whatever they might then disclose. Isaac Simmons, Joseph Samuels told the crowd, had, under the safety of this solemn oath, confided in him that he had, in those fateful pre-dawn hours of Friday the 26th of August 1803, gone to where he'd been told the desk was stashed. Constable Luca had surprised Isaac Simmons, and here Joseph Samuels directly quoted Isaac Simmons as having said he knocked him down and then gave him a topper for luck. A topper for luck. A blow to the head. Despite this, Isaac Simmons had claimed to Joseph Samuels that it wasn't really his fault. His partners in crime had neglected to tell him the money had already been removed from the desk. If he'd known this, he wouldn't have been there, and this whole sorry business would never have happened. But it had, and Joseph Samuels reckoned that Isaac Simmons had claimed, quote, he would hang 500 Christians to save himself. Joseph Samuels was accusing Isaac Simmons of murder from the gallows. Isaac Simmons responded loudly that this was not true. But Joseph Samuel's way of speaking had won the crowd over. The Gazette characterized his revelations as being made with mildness and composure. His claim, quote, gained credit among the spectators, in whose breasts sentiments of abhorrence was universally awakened. Happy George certainly knew who he believed. He'd cast suspicion on Isaac Simmons in his reporting of Constable Luca's funeral. Now, he reminded readers of this scene, quote, Odium and suspicion were attached to Simmons from the very day on which the dreaded crime was perpetrated, and every eye was fixed in doubt upon his countenance when he assiduously assisted to lower the mangled corpse into the grave. Justice had not been done by the judge advocate and the bench, but Happy George reckoned the people had rendered their verdict on Simmons, 
Quote, Although from the want of that full and sufficient evidence which the law requires, he escaped condemnation, yet he had been arraigned at the arbitrary tribunal of public opinion, and most of the spectators pronounced judgment against him in their hearts. The Gazette said there was no way Joseph Samuels was lying. It is not to be wondered at that testimony like that, proceeding from the lips of a dying man whose only probable concern was to ease the burden of his conscience in the hour of his death, should at once remove all doubt if such remained as to Simmons's guilt, and the feelings of the multitude broke forth in invective. The scene was angry. The crowd whose men, women and children would have represented a goodly proportion of Australia's entire white population was now turning on Simmons, a snake in their midst. As he was there in custody, it was up to the Corps to protect him from whatever the public might do. But the drama was far from over. Joseph Samuels and James Hardwick still had to hang. They ascended the cart and the executioner got to work with his ropes. Just as these two men were about to be launched into eternity, the Provost Marshal announced that the Governor had reprieved James Hardwick. As he was led down from the cart to begin his life sentence, Joseph Samuels devoted his last moments on earth to, quote, earnest and fervent prayer. Then it was time to die. The Provost Marshal gave the signal. The hangman pulled the cart away. Joseph Samuels dropped and kept dropping until he hit the dirt. The crowd's reaction to this wasn't recorded in the Gazette, but you can almost hear the gasps, shrieks, screams and shouts echoing down the centuries. There can't have been a mouth that remained closed. The Gazette reported, quote, The suspending rope was separated at about the centre and the culprit fell to the ground on which he remained motionless face downwards. Hanging was a cruel and crude method of execution. Such mistakes did happen. During this period, executioners had no training and ropes were not standardized or tested. Oftentimes, hangmen botched jobs. Sometimes, ropes broke. Joseph Samuels was still alive, but he'd been sentenced to hang by the neck until he was dead, not until he was face down in the dirt and still breathing. It was time to die again. The Gazette, quote, The cart returned and the criminal was supported on each side until another rope was applied in lieu of the former. You have to imagine that everyone held their breath as Joseph Samuels took his last breath. The Gazette continued, He was again launched off, but the line unrove and continued to slip until the legs of the sufferer trailed along the ground the body being only half suspended. The crowd, already on Joseph Samuel's side after the revelation, was now on edge and emotional. The Gazette, all that beheld, were also now moved at his protracted sufferings. Among the witnesses were those who saw divine intervention at work. If Governor King wouldn't spare this man, then the King of Kings was trying to. The Gazette, nor did some hesitate to declare that the invisible hand of providence was at work in the behalf of him who had revealed the circumstances above related. Yet, man's law was man's law, 
Joseph Samuels actually looked dead, but they had to be sure. The Gazette, to every appearance lifeless, the body was again raised and supported on men's shoulders while the executioner prepared anew his work of death. This time the hangman appeared to go about his business gently, possibly so as to not further inflame the furious crowd. Quote, the noose was adjusted and the body gently lowered, and when left alone again, fell prostrate to the earth, the rope having snapped off short, close to the neck. For a crowd of Christians, this had to feel like a biblical scene. You can take your pick of the threes from the holy book. Jesus' ministry lasting three years, Satan tempting Jesus three times, Peter denying Jesus three times, Jesus being one of three crucified, Jesus rising on the third day, and so on. God, or something, had saved Joseph Samuels three times. The Gazette characterized the crowd's reaction as, compassion could no longer bear restraint. Those present were crying out for mercy, and the provost marshal could no longer ignore them, just as he could not ignore the evidence of his own eyes. He, quote, sped to his excellency's presence. Governor Philip Gidley King heard the story and ordered mercy. The Gazette wholeheartedly endorsed His Excellency's decision. Quote, A reprieve was announced, and if mercy be a fault, it is the dearest attribute of God, and surely in heaven may find extenuation. Understandably, the Provost Marshal appeared to be teary when, quote, The success of his mission overcame him. Composing himself, he brought the good news back to the gallows. Not that Joseph Samuels heard it. While his reprieve, quote, diffused gladness throughout every heart, the now uncondemned man, quote, was incapable of participating in the general satisfaction. The Gazette explained that being launched to the brink of eternity three times had left Joseph Samuels a little worse for wear. Quote, by what he had endured, his reasonable faculties were totally impaired, and when his nerves recovered somewhat from their feebleness, he uttered many incoherences and was alone ignorant of what had passed. Joseph Samuels had been at the centre of what seemed to be a miracle, and he had no recollection of it at all. This might have actually been another blessing, given the trauma of three near-death experiences in such a short space of time. Joseph Samuels was taken to the medical men. As the Gazette reported, surgical assistance has since restored him. Given the paper printed this account on the 2nd of October, six days after the attempted hanging, Joseph Samuels can't have had any serious injuries, such as a fractured or broken neck or brain damage from blood and oxygen starvation. Joseph Samuels seemingly would be just fine to serve out his life sentence. So, what on earth, or heaven, had actually happened? Inquiring minds wanted to know at the time, and a test was made that day on one of the ropes. It was found to be defective in the short section where the break had occurred. But even with two of the three strands of the rope severed, the remaining strand could still suspend seven 56-pound weights, a total of nearly 180 kilograms 
or three times what the average man would have then weighed. Whatever had happened, the Gazette hoped it would serve as a lesson for Joseph Samuels. In all capital letters, it urged, quote, May the grateful remembrance of these events direct his future course. Two other men, John Lynch and James Tracy, who'd been condemned to die the previous Friday, were taken out to the Castle Hill gallows that Monday, with the Reverend Marsden again pulling death duty. On this scaffold, Lynch exhorted the crowd to not follow his melancholy example. But his penitent speech was continually interrupted by Tracy. The Gazette told readers Tracy was his, quote, unrelenting companion who harshly desired him not to gratify the spectators, and shortly after, they were both launched into eternity. About 1,500 further hangings would be carried out in Australia until the last execution of Ronald Ryan in 1967. There would be many, many hideous blunders, including ropes breaking, but there'd never again be anything like the case of Joseph Samuels. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As for Isaac Simmons, as a measure of the disdain with which he was held in the first week of October, with the gallows sensation still fresh in memory, he was charged with disorderly conduct, neglect of work and being refractory. You get the feeling that this man might have then stopped work to sneeze and copped these charges. He was brought from George's head and he received 50 lashes in front of the jail. This flogging surely soothed many an angry soul. Yet their anger, perhaps, was also lessened by the idea that Isaac Simmons had, in his own way, played a role in a divine drama. And, after all, Joseph Samuels was still breathing. He had been saved. Later, for Isaac Simmons, all seemed to be forgiven, forgotten, or at least set aside and he'd even resumed duties as a constable. Was Isaac Simmons guilty of Constable Luca's murder? Could Joseph Samuel's gallows confession be believed? We just can't know. It was assumed that Joseph Samuels had no reason to lie, but he actually had plenty of motive to drop Simmons in hot water. After all, it had been Isaac Simmons who'd initially dobbed him in as knowing about the burglary. Joseph Samuels had lied in his initial confession, and we can't take the claim that he did so to protect Richard Jackson at face value. There may have been another motive. On the gallows, by Joseph Samuels' own account, he was breaking a solemn Hebrew oath, presumably sworn to God. Standing there, about to meet his maker, Joseph Samuels may very well have felt aggrieved that he alone was going to pay with his life for the crime that had clearly been the work of a gang. 
a gang almost certainly led by corrupt constable Isaac Simmons. Joseph Samuels also knew that if he pointed the finger at Simmons, this wouldn't actually lead to anything more than discomfort for the man. He'd already been acquitted of the murder. As for what Joseph Samuels claimed from the gallows, it didn't completely match the circumstances of Constable Luca's killing. There had clearly been more than one attacker, but Isaac Simmons had given no indication of this, at least according to what Joseph Samuels said, or what Happy George recorded of what Joseph Samuels said. Joseph Samuels saying that Isaac Simmons had known where the desk was, but not that the money had been taken, sounded again less like a breakdown in criminal communications, and more like crooks double-crossing each other, which only adds to the murkiness of the mystery. On that score, Richard Jackson, who'd successfully gotten immunity for his evidence, had known copper coins were buried near the constable's body, so it'd seem obvious that he'd been in on the murder. William Bladders' pig story? Well, it was possible that he and his friends had wanted bacon for brekkie, but it seems more probable he'd also been there when Constable Luca was killed. While the Sydney Gazette gives us much, gaps in the coverage place limits on what we can know. And Happy George, as we saw from his first ever true crime story, made mistakes and sensationalised. In this case, he didn't issue any corrections. So, any unacknowledged errors or exaggerations could leave us with a distorted view, and we have no competing sources for a comparison. Adding to this, the Gazette was a government-approved newspaper, and it was subject to censorship, so Happy George's coverage might have been influenced by officialdom wanting to make themselves look better. As for what happened with the ropes, your guess is as good as mine. Sabotage to save Joseph Samuels is possible, but it would have required numerous conspirators, including the hangman and whoever was helping to get the new ropes. Anyone found guilty of such treachery would have put his own neck in the noose. It's hard to see how a petty criminal like Joseph Samuels could have enlisted such a cunning network of saviours and or raised enough money to pay the necessary bribes. Joseph Samuels had been one of eight men sentenced to death in those criminal sessions in September 1803. His salvation had come in circumstances that were so exceptional as to feel providential. So, did the grateful remembrance of these events direct his future course, as the Gazette had hoped? Maybe the experience did shape him, just in an unexpected way. Maybe cheating death three times made him think he was untouchable. By 1806, Joseph Samuels was a convict in Newcastle. On April Fool's Day, he was one of eight convicts who stole an open boat and made for freedom. The Gazette would report six weeks later that they, quote, had provisions for a few weeks and neither mast, sail, or any single implement of navigation. A ship called Resource had arrived in Newcastle two days after the escape and, quote, went immediately in pursuit but after running beyond Port Stephen and accurately examining every creek, bay and inlet, returned well satisfied that the unhappy men had never outlived the tempest on the second night subsequent to their unfortunate flight. Were the government and its gazette right? 
Had Joseph Samuels drowned with his mates? Or was it wishful thinking? Had he cheated death again and afterwards somehow lived off the land and or taken on a new identity? It'd be a question raised time and again as this story was retold over the next two centuries, usually in newspapers, usually in not a lot of detail. One place you will find detail and some interesting theories about police corruption, Isaac Simmons' guilt and Joseph Lucas' escape is historian Louise Stedding's monograph, Death on Nightwatch. Death on Nightwatch was published by InFocus Press in 2016 and it's available via online booksellers. Louise Stedding is a little bit more optimistic about Joseph Samuel's fate. For my money, I reckon his luck ran out on the open sea. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.